As we uh, continue in this series on the identity of Jesus, this is our very last message in this series on the great I am statements of Jesus as given to us in the Gospel of John, in the Gospel of John. So um, everyone, everyone's life is driven by something. So whether you are driving a car, driving a nail into a piece of wood, or driving a golf ball down the center of the fairway, hopefully, uh, you, you are guiding something. You are directing something. Something is, is giving it direction and guidance, and, and at that point, you are the one who's in control. Right? You're the one swinging the hammer. You're the one with the steering wheel in your hand. You're the one with the driver in your hand hitting that golf ball. So my question for you today on this Easter Sunday is this, what is it that drives your life? What is it that drives your life? You may be driven by a painful memory. It drives your life. You may be driven by a a haunting circumstance. For example, you may be driven right now by the coronavirus pandemic. And quite frankly, it, it is having an infa- impact and uh, effect upon our lives. And is, it is driving our lives to a certain degree because we now have isolation and we have social distancing and we have uh, businesses that have been forced to close their doors and the schools have closed and parents are homeschooling their children and people are being laid off and everyone is referring to this as the new normal. Is this going to be the new normal from here on out? And Of course, they always conclude that with, don't worry about it, we're all in this together. There are hundreds of circumstances, values, and emotions that can be the driving force of your life. But I think that the coronavirus pandemic has brought to the surface one of the most underlying emotions that drives our lives day in and day out, although we may not see it, we may not understand it, and we may not even acknowledge it. And that driving emotion is the emotion of fear. I would dare say that fear has been driving your life all of your life. Let me give you some examples, and these should come up on the screen. The fear of not being liked. You remember that probably pretty early on in school. You were afraid that Your classmates aren't going to like you. You're not going to have any friends. And so that fear drives you to become a people pleaser. It's what drove me into alcohol and drugs as a teenager because I I didn't, you know, I don't want to be on the outside. I I wanted a group of friends. I was afraid I wasn't going to be liked. I, I was afraid I wasn't going to be accepted. So I adapted myself to the people that surrounded me in order to be liked. Show me your friends, and I can pretty much show you what your future is going to look like. For some of us, it's the fear of not having enough. Again, the coronavirus has unearthed this this sense of hoarding, right? You're fearful you don't have enough, and so you, you, you dive into the grocery stores, and we're emptying shelves as though they're never going to be filled again, and I don't even get the whole thing with the toilet paper. Uh, why a respiratory disease has caused people to go, you know, all gangster on toilet paper, and you know people are fighting in the aisles, and I, I don't get that, but but I do understand a fear that can drive you to hoarding because you you're afraid that you're going to run out, you're not going to have enough. It might be the fear of failure, so we we become perfectionists, right? We're afraid of failing, we become perfectionists, and we try to control and we try to make everything perfect in life. 
And this creates a tremendous amount of stress and anxiety and tension because you just can't seem to move forward until everything around you is perfect. But we live in an imperfect world among imperfect people, so is it even possible to bring perfection into the realm of your life? Probably not. And because of that fear, it drives you to perfectionism. There's a fear of insignificance, so we strive for success. Life becomes about what we can accomplish. It becomes about uh, my life and, and my work and my plans and my achievements. And really it becomes all about us. And we're trying to feed our egos and, and trying to be successful because we want to have a life that's significant. That when we reach the end of this life that we feel like we have made a difference. We have left an imprint upon this world that's better than when we arrived. And if we're not careful, though, it's, it's that we, we're so focused on us that we build the walls around us, and as those walls are built around us, we become more and more selfish and self-centered and self-driven because fear is driving our life. Maybe it's the fear of financial shortage, especially in this day and time, right? Especially in this moment where you're out of work, you've been laid off, uh, maybe your workplace is, is closing for good, and you're wondering, what does my future look at like financially? How am I going to provide for my family, and what's going to happen to us? And many of you have, have struggled trying to file for unemployment over the last several weeks because the system got overwhelmed, and the computers crashed, and the website, and not enough people to answer phones, and you're on phones for hours trying to get a human voice on the other end. Because the fear is driving you. I, I'm, my paycheck's about to run out, and rent is due, and I, I don't know what to do, and I'm, I'm trying to make the best of it. For some, it's the fear of sickness. The fear of sickness drives our lives. We're wondering and to ourselves, have I done enough to ensure that I'm not going to contract coronavirus? Uh, maybe you have elderly parents, and you're trying to keep them isolated, and you're fearful of you getting the the coronavirus, and maybe you're asymptomatic, and you're fearful of giving it to them, and, and because they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't deal with it as well as you could if you're younger. And so the fear of sickness can drive us, and, and in fact, it can, be, it can cause you to become a hypochondriac if you're not careful, and it paralyzes us emotionally with worry and fear and anxiety about the future. And then there's the ultimate one, which is the fear of death. The fear of death. I heard many people say over the course of my ministry, I just hate hospitals. And the reason why they hate hospitals is because they've been in a hospital where a loved one died. And when you take a memory and an emotion and you connect those two together, that is a very powerful force in your life. And so now when you step back into the hospital, all of a sudden that memory of your loved one dying, maybe it was a parent or a grandparent, comes to the surface and the emotions rise back up and and you know what that feels like, and you just don't want to experience that anymore. And right now, in this you know, tally of death uh, rising around the world, people are wondering, what happens after this life? What's the process of death like? What happens once I die? Where do I go? What, what takes place? What transpires? Listen, nothing creates more fear than the unknown. And since many people do not know what happens after death, it just begins to take fear and exponentially it just ratchets it up to a whole nother level. So these are the fears that 
we are experiencing. These are fear-driven um, behaviors in our lives. Now, whenever fear confronts us, we, we can respond in one of many ways. Instinctively, we, we respond to fear with um, you know, fight or flight. You've heard that term probably in school that when you're confronted with, let's say, you know, I'm out walking on a pathway and all of a sudden a snake comes onto the pathway and I have a decision to make, right? So it's either fight or flight. So let's see how well you know your pastor. If there's a snake that comes across the pathway, will I A, pick it up, pet it, send it on its way, or will I B, scream like a girl and run, or will I C, get all ninja on it and kill it? Well, if you said B, you're right, all right? I'm going to scream like a girl, and I'm going to run. And all I have to do is outrun my wife, and I'm good. So uh, it's going to get her, not me. But there's a, there's a third instinctive thing that happens to us is that sometimes, rather than fight or flight, we freeze up. We just, we're just frozen in our tracks. One time when I was deer hunting in Pennsylvania, I had shot a deer, and I was tracking it, and there was snow on the ground, and I was following the blood trail. That deer went into the laurel, and I went down after it, and all of a sudden, a bear jumped up in front of me. Now, I was so startled. I was so frozen. That bear could have eaten me for lunch. Fortunately, the bear ran the other way. I was toast had that bear turned itself upon me. And so we just freeze up. And for many of you, maybe during this pandemic in which we find ourselves, you're just kind of hunkered down and you just don't want to face life and you don't want to face a threatening situation. So now fear is the driving force behind your decision. It's the driving force behind your thought processes, your emotions, and your actions. And when fear seizes you up, now all of a sudden you can't move. You, you can't respond appropriately. You just, you're not sure what to do. May I suggest that there is a fourth response that we can take, and it is the response of freedom, of freedom. The Bible says that God has not given us a spirit of fear. Now, notice what the Bible says. He didn't say that God has not given us the emotion of fear. We all have the emotion of fear. But the emotion of fear does not have to be the driving force of your life. It does not have to be the underlying emotion that's moving and directing you. God has not given you that spirit. He's given you the spirit of God so that you can rise above the fear and move forward in the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of resurrection so that we are moving in a direction that is different than those around us. I mean, think about this. What would it be like if you could live your life from here on out free of being a people pleaser, worrying about what others, free to live how God has created you to be. And you're free of this people pleasing, driven by that fear that people are not going to like you. What would it be like if your life didn't, you know, it's just, um, uh, you didn't have the fear of not having enough. You didn't have the fear of being a failure. You didn't have the fear of being insignificant. You didn't have the fear of sickness or death. What would your life be like? It would be absolutely different than if you are being driven by those fears. So today I want to talk about how do you move from fear to freedom? I want you to think of it in terms of a highway, and you're traveling the highway, and you enter on the entrance ramp in fear, but you want to exit down here in, in, in freedom. So how do you travel from fear to freedom? 
The word is faith. And faith must have an object. And the object of your faith cannot just be any old object. The object of your faith needs to be rested and secured in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can enable us to shed the underlying emotion of fear driving our lives and take off the old, as the Bible would say, and put on the new so that we can walk in faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as he is our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I have everything I need. So if my needs are spiritual or physical or directional or eternal, physical, whatever my needs are, Jesus can supply my needs. Therefore, I have nothing to fear. Therefore, I walk in freedom. We would all like that kind of life, I would say. And today I want to answer the question, then, how do you move from fear to freedom? How do you travel down that highway? Because it's a choice. It's a choice that you can make. And the reason we are driven by fear is because we have chosen to put our hope and our trust in ourselves more than we have put our hope and our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever you fear the most is where you're trusting God the least in your life. See, this is an identity issue. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and life, that is an identity issue. When we are living fearful, fearfully driven, it is an identity issue. If my identity is in myself, in my capability to control, and my capability to manipulate, and my capability of changing the circumstances, I will always live driven by fear. But if my faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has the capability and the ability to change any situation, even if that situation is deemed as dead, whenever resurrection walks into a dead situation, resurrection wins. And resurrection can bring you out of fear back into freedom. You do not have to live that way. So I'm glad if you're tuned in today and maybe you are not a follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe you don't even know that much about him and you're skeptical about Christ and religion and all these other. This is a great day for you to be visiting because Easter is about resurrection so what I want to do is look in John chapter 11. I'm going to give you three lessons from this, these verses and one um, truth that needs to be embraced if you want to live a life of freedom from the driving emotion of fear. So here's lesson number one. And this is a tough one. We're going to spend the bulk of our time on this one. Even when you do not understand God's ways, even when you do not understand God's ways, he can be trusted. He can be trusted. So let's pick up the story in John chapter 11 between Jesus and three individuals that Jesus dearly loved, and their names were Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. John 11, verse 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one whom you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, 
This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for the glory of God that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Mary and Martha, all right, and her sister. He, he loved Lazarus. And yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Now I want you to think about this. So here are three individuals that have very much been involved in the, in the life and the ministry of Jesus. They were probably financial backers. Now, they're from a little town called Bethany, which is about 30 miles east of Jerusalem. It's in the location, the region of Judea. So you have Galilee, Samaria, and Judea. And so whenever Jesus was ministering in the region of Judea, the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus was kind of his headquarters. It's, kind of, it's where he went. It's where he relaxed. It's where he had some downtime. And when he was up in Galilee uh, ministering, it was Capernaum. He, was, he, he had a place there that he would go. And so these are three individuals who are very, very much involved and entangled in the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll notice it says that Lazarus was sick. Now, this is not like a post-nasal drip kind of sickness. This is a sickness that if Jesus does not come and intervene, he's going to die. He is absolutely going to die. And you'll notice the Bible says that Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, the one whom you love. Man, he's, he's sick. I find it interesting that they kind of add that little, um, that phrase, the one whom you love. Now, when Jesus received that word, he's 100 miles away from Bethany. Now, here's what I know about Jesus. He had the authority, he had the power to heal from a distance. There was one time a, 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 a Roman official came and uh, asked Jesus, he said, look, my son is sick, I think he's dying, can you come and do something about it? Jesus was in Cana, he was in Capernaum, and Jesus said to that official, go on home, I've healed your son. He, he's going to be okay by the time you arrive. And that's exactly what happened. So when Jesus received word, he could have spoke a word from a distance and brought Lazarus off his sick bed. But notice what it says. When he received word, he delayed for two extra days, knowing that this sickness would result in the death of Lazarus. And so Mary and Martha, they, they're sending word to Jesus, much like we would, right? Somebody is in our family, they're sick, they're dying, we're going to pray, we're sending word to God. And so it's, Lord, this is the one whom you love. Now, they, they love Jesus, Jesus loves them. And so if, if I had sent word to Jesus at this point, I probably would have added some things. Like, Lord, you know, Lazarus, the one whom you love, he's sick. You know he's such a good guy, Lord. He loves you. He prays. He gives. He ministers to people. I mean, Lord, he just he does all these things because, you know, God, he just loves you. And wants, this is not fair. This sickness surely is not going to end in death. That's not the way we pray, right? Isn't it oftentimes when we pray to God, whether it's for ourselves or somebody else, we begin to 
open up our resume before the Lord and say, Lord, uh, I really need your help. Uh, Lord, you know I've been faithful. You know know, I I serve, I give, I, I worship, I read the Bible, I pray all the time. Lord, based on what I have done, will you please provide for me? I want you to know something. It would have been pointless for Mary and Martha to have recited the laundry list of their brother's achievements, and here's why. It's the same reason why it's pointless for you to do the same thing. Jesus is moved by compassion, not because of what you've done, but because of who you are. You are God's creation. Jesus is always going to respond to you, not because you've done the right things. It's simply out of his love for you. This extravagant love that was sung about here this morning in our our time of worship, what if you prayed and said, God, because I am the object of your obsession, the object of your love, that incredible love, I know you love me. God, I know that you care about me and you care about my needs and my wants and my desires. And so the emphasis in the Bible is always upon either man loving God or God loving man. It's always upon God loving man. All 66 books of the Bible puts the emphasis upon God loving man. And so Mary and Martha, they send word to Jesus and they receive word back from Jesus. Hey guys, don't worry about this. This sickness is not going to result in death. This is for the glory of God. This is for the Son of God to be glorified. He is not going to. This is not going to end in death. Now, don't you think that Mary and Martha probably went to bed that night feeling affirmed and feeling confident that they're going to get up the next day, they're going to walk down into the kitchen, and Lazarus is going to be sitting at the table, you know, asking for something to eat because God's miraculously healed him and brought him off his sickbed. But instead, they get up the next day, they walk downstairs, Lazarus is nowhere to be seen, they run to his room, and he's gotten far worse than he was the day before. And you can imagine panic begins to set in, and they run out on the front porch, and they start scanning the horizon. Where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? Why is he delaying? Why has he not come here yet? And all of a sudden, now fear begins to kick in. What if he does not show up on time? What if he doesn't get here in our time of need? Now, what Mary and Martha did not have is what we have was the backstory. They didn't know that Jesus said, Hey, I got word that Lazarus is sick, he's dying. We're going to stay here for two more days. They didn't have that information. Right? They're just going on, they've sent word to Jesus, he loves him, and we just know that Jesus is going to come and Jesus is going to intervene. Now, when we read this, we cannot help but think, well, if Jesus loves Lazarus, then why did he delay? Why didn't he come immediately? Why didn't he show up knowing that Lazarus is in such a need? Listen, if you have walked with God for any length of time, you will find yourself in this same situation, this same scenario at some point in your life in which you're crying out to God, the need is there, it is a desperate need, and there's a time factor that is built in, and you're crying out to the Lord, and you're asking him to come through, and all of a sudden, nothing's happening. Jesus isn't showing up on the scene. God's not dropped a word from you from heaven, and things just continue to get worse and worse and worse, and your faith begins to what? It begins to melt away, and fear begins to rise up. So in those moments and those times in our lives, when God is doing something that we can cannot see, we cannot understand, how do we maintain our faith in him in those moments in our lives? 
Because we say things like, well, I was afraid Jesus would let this happen. I, I, I knew Jesus probably didn't care, or, or maybe he's just like, uh, you know, why didn't he change this person's heart? Why didn't he heal my marriage? Why didn't he heal my father or my mother of this, this illness? Why didn't he heal them physically? Why did he not come through? And the reason we ask these questions is because there are just some things in life where it's God's timing, it's God's, it's, it's, it's God's wisdom, it's God's judgment, it's his call, and we just don't understand it. We just don't get it. Why is he not responding the way we think he should respond. And you'll notice in verse 7, it says after that two-day delay that Jesus says to the disciples, all right, let's go. Let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going back there? And Jesus answered, are not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by his, his world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles for he has no light. And so basically the disciples are saying, look, Jesus, do you remember what happened last time we were in Jerusalem? The religious leaders, man, they, they tried to seize you. Uh, they were going to put har bodily harm upon you and you're taking us back there all of a sudden? The response of the disciples almost like, uh, it's kind of like camouflaging uh, their real own fears by saying, well, you know, Lord, you really don't want to go back there. I think that we're actually saying, Lord, we don't want to go back there. But Jesus says, listen, we have a divine opportunity to do something miraculous in this moment in time. We have the daylight to do it. Darkness is coming. What's Jesus referring to? His crucifixion. He's less than a week out from his crucifixion. Darkness is coming. I have an opportunity to show to the world that I am the resurrection and the life. And we're going to go. We're going to weather the storm. I find it's interesting that two things that have been flying off the shelves since the pandemic has hit, besides toilet paper, are Bibles and ammunition. My brother-in-law works for a company where they, you know, he's a, he's a gun salesman, deals in ammunition and all those things. Uh, the, the day after the lockdown, you know, by our governor, um, the next day they did $120,000 in sales just for ammunition. And you would go into stores and Bibles were flying off of the shelves. Why? Because people are looking, they're searching, they're wondering, they want to know, is this the end of the world? Is this, this, is this how it all comes to an end? And so there are those who are seeking out God for the answers, and there are others who are just going to like hunker down and barricade themselves in order to, to fight if need be. And so Jesus says, we're going. And no, notice what happens. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going to I'm going to go there and wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Like they're not equating sleep with death. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told the disciples plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. And Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, Let's also go that we may die with him. <laughs> That's cheery thought, right? I want to focus in on this word sleep. The word sleep in the New Testament is a euphemistic word for death. Now, it is not used with regards as some have taught 
to soul sleeping, which some people say when you die, all of a sudden you become unconscious and your soul goes into a deep sleep and you're not awakened until a further time down the road. Some people look at this word sleep and they, they attach to it um, purgatory or some attach to it annihilation. That after you die, you're just simply annihilated. You don't ever know that you've ever existed and life just ceases to be. This is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we've been created in God's image. God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God in one essence, but has displayed himself in three ways. We are spirit, soul, and body. This is so, so important. You are a triune being, one essence, but you have a physical body. You have a soul, your mind, will, and emotions, the psychological part of you. You have a spirit, which is where you connect with God. That you, we come into this world spiritually dead. When you give your life to Jesus, become a follower of his, God breathes into you the breath of life, the Holy Spirit of God that connects you to Christ. Like right now, you're watching this streaming, but if you were to disconnect your power source, guess what? The streaming would cease to exist. That's how we came into the world. We were disconnected from the power source of life, who is God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what happens when you die? Well, when Jesus is speaking these words, uh, when you die, your physical body ceases to be alive, but you're still alive. All right, this physical body ceases, but your spirit, your soul is e eternal. God did not create you for time, but he created you for eternity. Every single human being who dies, although you experience a physical death, your spiritual life moves on into eternity to one of two places. And so when Jesus is giving these words, he's speaking of when a person dies, here's what would happen. The spirit the soul removes itself from the body, and the soul then moves into the realm called Sheol in the Old Testament, Hades in the New Testament, that was split into two compartments. On one side, there was uh, in Hades, there was the abode of, of the dead. On the other side, it was called Abraham's paradise, or um, sometimes Abraham's bosom. And so there was a great chasm that separated these two compartments. Now you can read about this in Luke chapter 16 where Jesus gave the story about a rich man and another man named Lazarus. Both died. One went into the grave or Hades or sometimes your translation translates it hell. But it really, literally it just means Hades or the graves. And the other one goes into paradise or into Abraham's side. And so uh, this is what happened in Jesus' day and time. So if you were a part of the covenant family of God, and this moment in time, if you were Jewish in the covenant family of God, when your body ceases to function, it's like the body has gone to sleep, your spirit, your soul moves out of the body. And so for Lazarus, it is now moved into paradise, right? Now, fast forward into our day and time, as a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are a part of the new covenant of God through a relationship with Jesus Christ, again, when you experience physical death, uh, your spirit, your soul removes itself from the body. And so in our day and time is that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And there is coming the day when Jesus will return back and he will resurrect our bodies and reunite them with our soul and our spirit. And thus we will always be with the Lord in this glorified body and God will have completed the salvation process. 
So in Jesus' day, when Jesus, for example, was crucified and put in the tomb, uh, it says in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18 that he went and visited the spirits. Uh, and so those spirits may have been uh, like the uh, fallen angels who are incarcerated in what's called Tartarus. It's like a pit, a holding tank. And Jesus probably went there and proclaimed his victory. But he went into paradise because, watch this, the day that Jesus was resurrected, guess what happened? He emptied out paradise, and he resurrected all the Old Testament saints, and their bodies were lifted out of the grave, reunited with their soul, and they went in to be in, in paradise or into heaven with, with Jesus upon his resurrection. Now, there's a second resurrection that takes place, and that is the resurrection of those who are in Hades. This comes at a much later time, Revelation chapter 20, the great white throne judgment of God. The Bible says that death and Hades gave, gave up the souls and the bodies of people. The soul and body are reunited. You're at the great white throne judgment of Christ, not to determine whether or not you're going to heaven or hell, because that has been determined through the decision you made in this lifetime, but to determine the degree of the punishment that you will receive while in hell. And so here's what I know. When you look at the story of Jesus with the rich man of Lazarus, that rich man was in Hades, a type of hell, but not the ultimate hell, and he did not beg to come out of there. He didn't say to God, this is a raw deal, I don't belong here, I've gotten a, you know, I, I, I don't deserve this, none of that. So I just want you to think in terms of this. There is absolutely nothing in the Bible about soul sleeping, about purgatory, about annihilation. There are two resurrections. The first resurrection comes in three phases, and the first phase is the resurrection of the first fruits, and that's when Jesus resurrected, emptied out paradise. The second one is the resurrection of the harvest. That's what happened when Jesus returns and raptures the church out of the world, and so that's the harvest. Jesus will resurrect all of the bodies of the dead saints, and those of us who are alive together will be caught up with him in the air. You can read about this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and then the last one is the resurrection of gleanings, which will happen during the seven years of tribulation. People will give their life to Jesus, become followers of Christ. They will be martyred for their faith, and there will be a resurrection, resurrecting those bodies back into the realm of God's presence. And so the miracle that is happening here, why is Jesus awaiting to bring resurrection in the life of Lazarus? He says, he says it to his own disciples, I'm doing this because I, I want you to believe. I want you to place your faith in me as Messiah, as the resurrection and the life this is the whole purpose for John writing this gospel. He said in John 20, 31, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So this is what Jesus is doing. And he says, now that they're moving out and look in verse 17, it says, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come out with Mary and Martha and to comfort them over the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. And Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, you could just almost imagine, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But watch this. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. 
And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. She's thinking about something way in the future that God had promised through the prophets. Now Jesus says, this is going to be today. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Now you'll note that it is the distinction here that Lazarus has been dead for four days. Why is that little tidbit of information put in there? Because according to the rabbi teaching, now this is not in the Bible, this is according to rabbi teaching, that when a person died, that the spirit of the person, the soul of the person, hung out around the body for three days, trying to enter back. But on the fourth day, it would depart and move off into paradise. This is that's what's the teaching. So, um, what, what, what the writer John is trying to get us to see is that Lazarus, he's dead, right? He's absolutely dead. There is no life in him at all. And so at the point of his death, there would be this ceremony uh, of taking Lazarus and preparing his body for, for the tomb. And they would take, you know, strips of linen and perfume and spices and prepared the body. They put it inside the tomb. There's a, like a flat rock honed out in the tomb. There's multiple ones. They, you place the body in there. You roll the stone. The body decays. You go back. You roll the stone back. You take off all the linens, and you take the bones and put it in an ossuary, which is like a stone box. You put the name of that person on that box, and then they're set in a different area of that tomb so that that flat, flat area can be used by the next person who dies. And so Mary and Martha says, people are coming out of Jerusalem, which means they're very connected. They're probably, you know, a kind of an upper class. And according to the Talmud, you know, regardless of how much money you may or may not have, you were to hire two flute players and a wailing woman. Now, you could hire more than that, because here's what the Jews would do, is for the first seven days of a person's death, they would sit Shiva, which means they sat in silence. And they're just contemplating and mourning. And as they're sitting Shiva, all of a sudden word gets to Martha that Jesus has now arrived on the scene. And she gets up and she runs and she has this exchange. And Jesus says in essence to her, Martha, God's mind has not changed. God's will has not changed. I'm telling you, your brother is going to live. He's going to rise. And she's thinking, okay, sometime in the future, Jesus is saying, no, this is going to happen now. So here's the need. Here's God's word. Here's the arrival of Christ. Things are about to change. Now, notice when Jesus says, I am the resurrection of life, it's not so much about an event as it is about a person. Dead things don't stay dead when resurrection walks into the scene. But they know that that Lazarus is died, he's dead. And so the question is, what's God's answer to this? And Jesus says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Now notice very closely what Jesus said. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Now watch. And whoever lives, believes in me, will never die. That's confusing. What Jesus is saying is death is, by God's definition, much different than ours. He's talking about eternal death or eternal separation. The Bible says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
That word death there means eternal separation, spiritual eternal separation from God forever. And so Jesus is saying, in essence, listen, Martha, I know that Lazarus has died. He has experienced physical death, but I'm telling you, he's never been more alive. And uh, his soul is in paradise, and I'm about to resurrect that body, and I'm about to pull that soul out of paradise. I'm going to reunite them together. He will never, ever taste of eternal death or separation from me. That's the crux of the matter, is that if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are not a part of the new covenant relationship with Christ, when you die physically, your body ceases to function. It is placed in a grave. Your soul will go to Hades, and there it will await a resurrection. But that resurrection is going to result in eternal death or eternal separation from God. There is no second chance after death. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that there is a second chance. And so, had Je- watch this. Had Jesus come immediately and healed Jesus while Lazarus was only sick, rather than waiting for him to die, he could not ta- have taken Mary and Martha or even Lazarus to a deeper level. They would have only known Jesus on the level of a healer. Now they're going to know him on the level of resurrection and life. See, God wants to take us deeper with him. It is a faith walk. It is a faith journey. And even when you don't understand God's ways, you can trust him because even if something dies, even if something doesn't make sense, even if something is broken in your marriage, it doesn't matter. Jesus specializes in resurrection. So even now, if you die physically, even now God can bring you back to, to life and one day he will through the resurrection of your, of your body. And so Mary and Martha, they don't understand it all yet. Lazarus hasn't come out of that tomb, but God's taking them deeper with him. Number two is the lesson is, even though God knows the final outcome, he is not indifferent to your pain. He is not indifferent to your pain. It says that Jesus, he comes after he makes that statement, Martha goes back, tells Mary, hey, the Lord's there. She runs out, she meets him. She says the same thing, but notice what it says. Verse 32, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. And he says, where have you laid him? That word troubled is the word that means um, that he was angered, that he was anguish, that he was indignant. Here's what the lesson for us is this. Listen, whatever we enter into, God is not indifferent to what we are feeling and what we are experiencing in those moments in our lives. God enters into the emotion of the moment. He enters into your stress. He enters into your wreckage. He enters into your life in a very profoundly personal way. Jesus is actually, he is absolutely flat out angered and mad because death was never supposed to be a part of the human existence. People say all the time, well, if that's the case, why in the world did did God allow it to happen? Because with death, with sin brought suffering and sorrow and death, why did he even allow that to take place? It's because God created us out of love, motivated by love, and love gives freedom. And you're free to choose. God didn't make us robotic. And someone says, well, why doesn't God come into the world now and stop this evil? Why doesn't he stop it now? Because if Jesus were to come into the world 
If he would have just black, you know, entered into the world and started judging people, not a one of them would have made it because we are all evil. We're all deceitful in our hearts. We are all uh, selfish and prideful, and sometimes we're cruel and oppressive, and none of us would have made it. This is what happened back in Genesis chapter 6. God came to the world because evil was rampant in the world, and he only found one man, Noah, and his family, and he rescued them, and he recreated everything, and it all went back to the way it was before. God is unfolding his plan, and we're going to talk about that in the next series uh, that I'll be starting next Sunday, but he is unfolding his plan. But listen, you know, you can take vitamins, and you can work out and eat right, but death, death still gets us. One out of one still dies. So I think I'm going to pass on the salad because you get bad salad, you can get E. coli, but you never get it from French fries. I'm going with the fries. You do what you want to do, right? So he wept. It says that Jesus, if there's something you want to memorize, verse 35, it says Jesus wept. He entered into the realm of their existence. Listen, Jesus, before he stepped out on the ministry scene at age, around age 30, he buried his stepdad, Joseph. He probably buried relatives. He saw people all around him who were sick and dying and diseased and was not able to do anything about it at that moment in time. He'd experienced everything that you and I experienced in this lifetime. He experienced his family denying him and thinking he was nuts and crazy and wanting to put him away in an institution. He experienced all those things. And so when Jesus stepped onto the scene as resurrection and life where he could do something about what death has brought to our doorstep, he comes into our lives in our brokenness, our tragedy, our hurt, our anguish. He understands because he's traveled down that road himself. God is not indifferent to your pain. He has stepped into your pain and he's given you the Holy Spirit who feels every single emotion, every thought you have, every emotion you have. He is taking that journey with you. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God is with me, and he's with you. Here's the third lesson. Even when it seems all hope is gone, God can work a miracle. And so Jesus comes on the scene, says in verse uh, 30, uh, 38, I believe it is. Uh, yeah. So Jesus, once more, he's deeply moved. He came to the tomb, and, he's, and it was a cave with a stone across the entrance. He says, take away the stone. But Lord, Martha said, uh, he's been in there for four days. He's got a bad odor, right? He's been there for four days. It's going to stink. Um, Jesus says, did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone. Father, I thank you. You've heard me. I knew that you would hear me. But I said this for their, their benefit of the people standing there, and they believe that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus? Come out! And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth and around his face. And Jesus says, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Listen. Jesus can work a miracle. Jesus said to Martha, this is going to happen. This is not going to result in death. And he's, Martha said, even now, God will give you, Lord, what you ask for. And what did Jesus ask for? He asked for Lazarus to come out of that tomb. Even now, God can raise your dead life back to its original intent. Even now, God can step into your loneliness and bring comfort. Even now, God can step into your confusion and bring peace. Even now, God can step into your broken family and help put it back together again. 
And so sometimes God allows something in our lives, our hope, a dream, an ambition, a relationship to die, but God has resurrection power. And so Jesus calls him out of the tomb. Why? Because otherwise he would have emptied out all of paradise. He calls him by name. Lazarus comes out. Now watch this. He's still wrapped in the grave clothes. It's Jesus who called him out. But notice, it's not Jesus who takes off the grave clothes. He says to the people around him, untie him, unhinge him from these grave clothes. And there is a lesson here for us is that you can enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. You can have resurrection power within you. And if you're going to take off the old and put on the new, you're probably not going to do that isolated and secluded by yourself. It is important that you get plugged into the body of Christ who can help you get set free from the old things of life. And so they can, you can be taught and nurtured and instructed. And you are traveling this road with people who have traveled it before you. And so here's the truth to be embraced as we close. Only Jesus can bring, only Jesus can bring you from death to life. Jesus raised three people from the grave during the time of his ministry. There was a young girl who had only been dead for a few moments. There was a young man who had been dead for several hours. And then there is Lazarus who has been dead for four days. So my question for you is this. Which one of those three was the most dead? See, dead is dead. There might be varying degrees of decay, but dead is dead. Sometimes we we look at ourselves and we say, well, you know what, I I might not be perfect, but I don't lie and I don't cheat, I don't steal, I don't do bad things. You know, there are people all around me and, and, you know, they've robbed banks and they've cheated on their spouse, they've, they've abused a child, they've murdered somebody, those people, you know, they're corrupt to the core. Listen, again, there are varying degrees of decay, but dead is dead. And the Bible says that every single one of us entered into the realm of this world spiritually dead. Now, how do you take a spiritually dead person and bring them back to life? Do you shove an instruction book in their lap and say, read these five lessons, and it's going to tell you how to become undead? Do you encourage them? Do you, like, sit beside their bedside and and just read words of encouragement over them, hoping they'll come back to life again? No. Here's how you bring dead people back to life. You must hear the voice of God. What brought Lazarus out of the tomb is because he heard the voice of Jesus calling him out of that tomb. What brings you from death to life is that the voice of God speaks into your heart and he calls you out of deadness. He calls you out of darkness into relationship with God's Holy Son because he is the only resurrection. He is the only one who can bring you life, spiritual life, so that you might bypass eternal death. That's what Easter is all about. That's why we celebrate resurrection. Because Jesus has the power and the authority to resurrect you and to give you spiritual life. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That word word means utterance, voice. You hear a voice of God calling you into relationship with Christ. Now, if you were to read the rest of this chapter, here's what happened. It says all these people who witnessed this Resurrection, it says some believed in Jesus. Didn't say all, some. The rest of them went to the the Jewish rabbis and ratted Jesus out. And it says from that day forward, they started looking for it and plotting a way to, to take him out. Here it is, Easter. Where are you in relationship with Christ? Do you want to live the rest of your life driven by fear? 
Or do you want to live the rest of your life walking in freedom? The only way you can exchange fear for freedom is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only resurrection and power who can take you, a dead spiritual person, and bring you to spiritual life. And when he does that, he breathes into you the Spirit of God, and that Spirit now enables you to live life differently. So I want you to bow your heads for a moment. Jesus didn't die on a cross to make bad people good. He died on a cross to bring dead people back to life. You know, I cannot make this decision before you, but if you're here and you're, you're hearing the call of God upon your life right now, there's like God's just like tugging your heart, or maybe it's just a small, still voice. He's calling you to come to Christ to lay down your life to Jesus, to surrender your life over to him, to receive him as Savior and Lord of your life, to breathe into you spiritual life, to forgive you of your sins, to envelop you into the life of Christ so that the resurrection power of Jesus becomes your resurrection power. So when this body ceases to function, you know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's the power to take your dead spirit and to bring it back to life. You'll say, well, I don't know how to do that. Well, I want to lead you in a prayer. The sincerity of your heart is that you want to receive and embrace Jesus to be Savior and Lord of your life. Maybe you'll pray something like this. this is, magic's not in the words. It's the sincerity of your heart. Heavenly Father, I admit today that I am spiritually dead and this has been authenticated by my sinful life. I believe that you sent Jesus who died on the cross and rose from the dead paying the penalty for my sins. I believe you sent him for me. I'm asking you this morning to forgive me of my sin. I want to receive the gift of eternal life in Christ. Jesus, right here, right now, I receive you into my life. I pray that you will lead, guide, and direct me from this day forward. And it's in Jesus' name that I ask for this gift, the gift of salvation, the gift of eternal life, the gift of resurrection power. In Christ's name I pray, amen. If you prayed that prayer this morning, there's going to be a website that comes up on the, on the screen, fbcgrowport at gmail.com. Would you take the time and, and email us and let us know that you received Christ this morning? I have some follow-up materials I'd like to give to you, to mail to you. Um, we just want to rejoice with you. There is resurrection power. You know, it's been almost, um, wow, 50 years ago, well, a little less than that, that I gave my life to Jesus. Jesus forever changed the course and the direction of my life. Forever. And now I no longer have to be fear-driven. I was extremely fear-driven in all aspects of my life. But now I live in freedom. What Christ has done for me, he can do for you. And if you pray to receive Christ, he has started that in your life. He has called you out of the grave into resurrection power. And I am so so stoked and so grateful to the Lord. The angels in heaven are rejoicing over the decision you've just made, and we would like to rejoice with you also. 
So we're going to sing a song, and then we're going to have the Lord's Supper. Again, I'm so excited you've been with us this morning, and I pray that God's word has penetrated your heart in a way that is supernatural.